You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation, and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. The Real Michael Lee is a musician based out of Iowa and a cross-disciplinary artist. He went to Columbia College studying graphic design, and he has been teaching me about different artists since we were in high school. I invited my good friend, Mike, to join me on the podcast today to talk about an artist he is very familiar with and, admittedly, I have long been ignorant about. I was never much of a comic book enthusiast, but Mike certainly has been for decades, and he joined me to share his expertise this week on a legend of the field, Jack Kirby. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I have a good friend who has introduced me to a number of different artists over the years. Um, I think way back in high school, you were introducing me to the Lawrence Arms, Adam and his package, oh, yeah. among <laughs> among others, on the old Plea for Peace compilation that was put mm. out by, uh, was that... Uh, it was one of the small ones. Was it? That wasn't. Yeah. That wasn't Fat Wreck. Something like that. Yeah. It wasn't Matador. It wasn't. I don't think it was Sub Pop. Was it Sub Pop? I'd have to look. At, I still have it. I still have that CD. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was a great, great CD. You've oh, opened yeah. my eyes to a lot of different stuff, and I thought you would be the perfect guest because. On Who Arted, we like to look at art and appreciate art in all of its forms. And today we're getting a little bit outside of my area of expertise. But I know this is a medium that you have not only appreciated as a consumer, but you have made your own comics. Yes. So I should actually say your name. (laughs) Today, my guest is my friend and musician, the real Michael Lee. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Um, So today, 
like I said, we're getting a little bit out of my area of expertise, but um, I I do think comics are something that need to be appreciated. I mean, if Roy Lichtenstein's copy of a comic book panel mm-hmm. can go into a museum, why doesn't the actual comic? You oh, know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And actually, the, uh, the gentleman we're going to talk about today had a huge influence on Lichtenstein by creating those comics that he was using for his museum pieces. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about Jack Kirby. Uh, Jack Kirby, basically, if you are into comic books, whether Marvel or DC, like Jack Kirby built it for you. Oh, yeah, you, you've seen his work, whether you know it or not. <laughs> yeah, Um Jack Kirby was born August 28th, 1917. Actually, his name at birth was not Jack Kirby. It was Jacob Kurtzberg. Uh, He grew up in New York. His parents were immigrants, um, his father working in a garments factory. So as I'm sure you can imagine from just history, early 20th century factory work, not really living high off the hog. Not at all. Um, it was, it sounds like it wasn't a terrible childhood, but he definitely kind of used art to get to a happy place for himself. He dove into the world of arts and developed that talent largely by drawing like comics and things that Mm -hmm. he saw in newspapers. I, I read and I didn't confirm, but I'm assuming his adoption of the name Kirby was based on one of his early influences. Uh, Roland Kirby was a political cartoonist Mm -hmm. that I guess uh, Jack Kirby or Jacob Kurtzberg at that time was quite the fan of. And uh, interesting fact, Roland Kirby was the first to receive the Pulitzer prize for political cartooning. And Jack would, he would draw like, just what he was seeing, he'd sit on a stoop and draw the street and the people going around selling fruit, what have you. And even then he had his style. He was, he was a budding artist, but he had his style there. And now he would develop that later on in the war. I um, love which I know the we'll little foreshadowing you're doing there. Yes. <laughs> and, but the exaggerated poses and that and catching people in motion as he's just sitting there as his kid sketching, you know, his neighborhood I mean, it's absolutely amazing to see this artist at such a young age already have a style of his own. Yeah. And, you know, being out in the neighborhood on his own, developing his own style and craft and everything like that, it kind of just reminds me for like historical connections and understanding how the world of, you know, the past was different from today. He basically, it sounds like he was a feral child. I mean, he was like out (laughs) just roaming the streets of New York, doing his own thing, hanging out with and learning from the other kids. I mean, at age 14, he went to Pratt, Mm -hmm. um, Pratt Institute, a school in New York. Like, I I didn't even know they were doing that back then, but I guess like in the 1930s, because that would that would have been like, yeah, 1931. Um, I guess back then it was just like, well, you know, you're a teenager. You're basically an adult. You can start doing this stuff because he was like 19, I think, when he was starting to actually get his first job um, at a newspaper. 
And then he went to an animation studio and he was doing what was referred to. He was like referred to as an in-betweener. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, he was doing the grunt work. He was doing the tedious work, making the frames that go in between like the major points in an animation. So he's doing like the stuff that smooths out the motion. You know yeah, what I mean? And that, yeah. And doing that would influence his style as well, because, you know, he had that, he already was growing with that, his exaggerated reaches and all that. And that stems from him, you know, that grew from him doing this in-between work and having to draw these poses for hours every day, you know, just little bit minute changes. And he grew that into his own style later on from the seeds he had planted earlier on a stoop of his porch drawing his neighborhood. Yeah, and I I kind of had the same thought as I was looking at his work and doing the research for this. One of the things that struck me about his his style was it was active, which mm-hmm. you would kind of expect for superheroes, yeah. you know. But it was always a little bit wonky. Yes. And I kind of just thought of um, you know, if I did that tedious animation work, you know, doing all the stuff that's in between the keyframes, mm-hmm. it's a lot of stuff that's wonky. And so you're building this muscle memory of just like the awkward off kilter poses. It's yeah. like, that's what you specialize in, in the early part of your career. It kind of makes sense that that yeah. would be sort of a characteristic of his later, more mature work. It is- definitely does. Yeah. And it, I think it aids the viewer in adding that action to the page on their own. Because you see a mid-movement, your brain's going to add the before and after to it. And you're going you're to imagine them making that movement. And it'll help you have a deeper appreciation of the image because you're seeing it move in your mind. That, does that make sense? I, <laughs> no, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, it makes it sort of cinematic. Yes, thank you. That's the word and I was looking for. <laughs> I think at the same time... I think it adds the human touch, mm-hmm. which is why I think his stuff works so well. Yes. Because like a, a superhero that wins all the time it becomes boring, yeah. right? There yeah. needs to be that struggle for that dramatic tension. And also an audience wants to relate to the protagonist. They want mm-hmm. to they want to see themselves in the hero. And if yes. if the hero is a little bit flawed, a little bit awkward, like mm-hmm. you know, I, I I think of the prime audience for for comic books, you know, it's a lot of teenagers mm-hmm. and newsflash teenagers you're not as smooth as you think you are they're (laughs) like they're a little bit awkward sometimes Mm -hmm. and it's nice to see like well if iron man can be a little bit wonky and awkward too like maybe maybe i'm not so bad even if i even if i did trip over my feet and yeah it builds that connection it makes the the superhero human in some ways oh most definitely especially with iron man you know he he has he had to wear that suit to live so he had to use that suit to move around he's doing all these great things with this huge encumbrance on him you know that that's massive for any teenager who sees sees that and says well you know i might not have that kind of injury to deal with but if he can do that i can get through what i need to 
and I can still be cool and have a great childhood despite all the stuff I'm going through and dealing with. Yeah. I mean, as, as a grown man who has never been awkward and clearly (laughs) as suave as can be, I can't really relate to it. I wonder when they're going to have, you know, the perfect man sort of comic book for me, but you know, for, for the rest of you little people, I'm sure it, it seems (laughs) to make a little bit of sense, but in all seriousness, like I, I do think that was a key to his success. I do think, you know, that uh, Japanese term wabi-sabi, the beauty of the imperfections, it's 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 a sentiment that has been expressed in all different different cultures and different times because there is a fundamental universal truth to the fact that we we connect and we find authenticity in those little imperfections and, and the wobbly mo- movements and things like that. Most definitely. And so then, you know, he continues like he starts off paying his dues like anybody else doing the grunt work. 1940, I feel like, is where he starts to get um, a little bit of a break. He connects up with uh, Joe Simon and the two of them work together. They created Captain America. Who? Captain America. Who's heard of him? Yeah. um, But he (laughs) was just a little character, you know, (laughs) just the little things. I mean, this was this was. I think the golden age of comic books. I mean, oh, this definitely. is this is when this is the time period that gave us Superman, Captain mm-hmm. America, Batman. you know, Batman, like yeah. all of the the characters that have been cherished through generations largely came from from this time period. Yeah. And another thing happening in this time period, World War Two, of course, mm-hmm. and Basically, from what I from what I understand, Kirby, Simon, they knew like they're going to get drafted. Everyone was getting drafted. Like it didn't matter if you were a a big time celebrity. I mean, Jimmy Stewart was, you know, in the Air Force doing bombing raids. I mean, like everybody was. Yeah. Except except John Wayne, the action hero. He drafted. (laughs) He dodged the draft. But like, you know, the guy who's drawing pictures He's instrumental for the war effort. So they actually they actually um, worked together to produce like a year's worth of comics content before they went into do their their tour of duty. And they did a lot of uh, propaganda too, like anti-Nazi propaganda, not just uh, Captain America, but they worked on other projects, too, together. Um, uh, Boy Commandos was the other one that they did pre- going into service that was a very, very propaganda. And that was aimed more at kids too, to really, I want to say show them what's going on, but get them to know, Hey, bad guys, good guys type of thing. Like propaganda is designed to do. Well, it, it, it's not only that, but I, I think on some level there's a little bit of sort of just wish fulfillment, having mm-hmm. these stories that are, are putting out what you kind of wish the world would be like. I mean, yeah. the early drafts of Superman, he was beating up like small Latin American dictators and things like yeah. that. I mean, <laughs> yes. it, it was the, the and, and like it was street gangs he was going after. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was much closer to the lived experience and like, he was fighting the enemies that the comic book creators saw as their enemies in, in yeah. the world. Um, and I think 
you know, that's what good storytelling does. It it mm-hmm. helps you. It gives a safe space to tackle those real world issues that are looming large and are frankly scary in the real world. But in the comic book world, you can you can tease it apart. You can look at it from different ways and imagine how it could be resolved in mm-hmm. in a pleasant way. And he utilized that um, a lot post-war with uh, like his creation of uh, characters like Darkseid, who is this intergalactic dictator. Um, he was recently seen in the uh, Zack Snyder Justice League. You saw him on screen finally. But he um, he's always there. You know, he, the way he stands, too. Kirby drew him standing, you know, his arms behind his back. I know you can't see me. This is an audio medium. But, <laughs> you know, arms behind his back, always very straight. And just, just like the dictators he saw during the war. And... You know, having that in the comics, it's easier for kids to see that and deal with it. No, it's out there. There are people that are like that. And having it in the comics, it is a bit of wish fulfillment to be able to to handle these. But it shows kids they can be handled. Yeah. You know, and I think that is true. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. You know, getting back to just our chronological story, he goes off no, I to. Go. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that part of what I like is how all of these threads come together. Oh, I do. There's yeah. a, a great story in here, which seems fitting because we're talking about a man who was illustrating stories. But in World War II, you've already alluded to the fact that he was actually using his art not only for the propaganda, but he was doing dangerous work. Oh, yes. He was um, on the front lines. He was he was on the front lines. He was often sent to scout ahead mm-hmm. because like once his commanding officer found out like, oh, you can draw. I'm going to have you go ahead and look around, draw maps of the area, show us mm-hmm. what the landmarks look like so that, you know, the rest of us can know where we're going and be more yep. successful as, as we push forward. But like... That's a dangerous job. Like oh, yes. he's left out there on a limb with mm. no one to literally no one has his back. Yeah. Uh, he, there was one instance, one of his early missions where they, he was sent to scout this fort over in a, um, the French border. And, um, you know, him and his, his platoon are out there and it's like super quiet. Right. They got there. No one's there. It's like, well, this is this is an active fortress where is everybody and then all of a sudden gunfire from all directions he ends up make a long story short he ends up in a foxhole for two straight days and he's in there and he's actually drawing the war around him and he's documenting it on you know in his sketch pad and actually that is where um he he attributes and many attribute 
the creation of his Kirby Crackles is from that experience when he's drawing blood splatters. Because this is what he's seeing outside of his little foxhole. You know, when he's able to peek his eyes up, you know, he's seeing people getting hit in that. And he's drawing this and filtering it through his pen on his pad. That That is such a horrifying thing to, to imagine. Yes, and, really I, you know, obviously it was something that changed a lot of people. It changed their oh, perspective. Yes. And w- this is a story that we've, we've seen so many times in the arts, mm-hmm. trying to make sense of those types of things and process it to, through your artwork. And as you said, he developed the Kirby crackle. And that yes. is one of those things that um, I I was not really aware of, I guess, consciously until I had read about it. You know, it was one of those things like a stylistic element I've seen, but had not like known the name of and, and all of that or known the, the development of it until until I was prepping for this podcast and you shared those details the one of the things about the way that comic books would be produced is, you know, you've got those color separations in older, cheaper ones. We had the Ben Day dots where it's all those different little dots of colors. Um, but the Kirby crackle um, or sometimes referred to as Kirby dots were this sort of stylistic device that he would use to make these, I would say, almost like smoky sorts of ink blots and stuff like that. Like there's this energy in the negative space. Oh, brilliant use of negative space with those dots. Like, I mean, I have, you rarely see somebody use, I would use negative space to that degree and give negative space such energy. Like, and it's so simple too. Like when you look at it and actually how it's done, it's like, Oh, that's not hard. But then when you think about how he uses it, like how brilliantly he used it over the course of his entire career. It's like, okay, wow, there's more to that than just, you know, filling in some, some dots or leaving areas blank. It's amazing what he did with that. Well, and I think the, the key is that it's not difficult in the execution of the dots themselves. It's knowing how big and where to place them and where things should be overlapping and, mm-hmm. and where they shouldn't be, because it creates this effect of, it's almost obfuscating. It's almost blocking our view of some yeah. areas. So you get, it creates this perception of like peering through billowing smoke or other things, you know, it, it we, it gives the energy, which is, you know, literally invisible, yeah. some physical presence on the page. So yeah. it, we get this sense that we're seeing through something like that, which uh, again, I, I mean, to visualize something that's invisible. Mm-hmm. That's, give it that, a, that's a major that, innovation. Oh, it is. And I mean, to give it that effervescence really just drove it home to folks that, Hey, there's stuff going on. Silver Surfer, he's, he's going through space, but he's got this trail of what have you behind him. And there's Andrew. He's got power. He's trailing power behind him. And just with these simple dots and the use of space. Yeah. I, like I say, it's, it's, it, it's a simple technique, but it's all in just knowing where and when and how much to to incorporate it. Um, yeah. That that's what makes it. That's what made him such a legend. Mm-hmm. And so basically, you know, after the war, he comes back, and this was a time when it seems like 
the comic industry was in its infancy in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. I mean, yes, there were comics, you know, in the in the late 19th, early 20th century and all of that. But like I said, this was sort of the golden age of the industry where people really started to develop it as an art form and there was experimentation. And it seems like a lot of the major players in the industry knew each other, worked together. Mm-hmm. There are companies springing up and going under and morphing into other companies. Yep. And it seems like basically all of them worked with Jack Kirby at some point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um he created a lot of the characters we know today, Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Iron Man, Black Panther, the Incredible Hulk, like the list goes on. It does. Um, and he also invented um, or was one of the, like the co-creators of the genre of like romance comics. Yep. Comics young for. Romance. Yeah. yeah. Um, With uh, Joe, his frequent collaborator from before the war, Joe Simon. Yeah, it's interesting seeing him create that because he was doing all this other stuff at the same time with the superheroes and that. But then he goes and these two middle aged guys create this comic book geared towards the female audience and with these romance stories. And, (laughs) you know, it it was it was just interesting, kind of like I want to say palate cleansing, but just doing something polar opposite of what he was doing with Stan Lee, you know, and coming up with these. These, these these problems for these couples to have and how to resolve them in a way that wasn't cheesy. You know, it was very interesting to, to see him do this at a time when it wasn't really, I want to say accepted, but it wasn't expected of him to do that. And now, I mean, it's, it's this massive genre with, I mean, you wouldn't have stuff like Twilight or, and, or, um, God, anything on the CW really <laughs> without, you know, his work back in this, in the, 50s and 60s on young romance with Joe Simon. <laughs> well, I, I think he was one of those people who recognized that comics were not just something for children mm-hmm. and not something just for little boys specifically. Yep. I mean, in in that day, there were a number of people who would have dismissed it as a frivolous thing and a gendered thing because it's superheroes and it's action yeah. and it's violence. And it's it's all of those different things that stereotypically would have been geared towards one demographic. And he realized, no, there are lots of people out there oh, with yes. lots of different interests. And we are we are telling stories and a good story can appeal to lots of different people Mm -hmm. and we can bring all of these different types of stories to life to really expand that audience and, and not, not pigeonhole the audience. And, and also it expands the medium. It does. You know, this is, this is a time too. you mentioned it was a bit of like a wild west for comics. Like this is the same time we had those, like the pulp novels and that, that, you know, the, the tech detective stories, you see a lot of it now where, um, you know, it's the guy with the gun going through the door and, uh, you know, the, the, the damsel, you know, and um, or like the sci fi and the horror comics and that that eventually end up bringing the comic code into play because they were getting a little too far out there with the violence and that. But, um, you know, they were really just pushing the boundaries of what they can do. And as you said, realizing that there's more than just kids who want to see this stuff and bringing the medium to a wider audience. 
Yeah. And, and in doing so, they turned comics into a far greater art form. Uh, you know, it's, it's that diversity that, that makes it stronger. So I guess we kind of covered a lot of that, that background. I mean, there's the sort of soap opera esque story of like his love hate with Stan Lee and Marvel. (laughs) Um, I I don't know that we need to get too much into the tawdry details, but it was like, you know, he was with Marvel for a long time. He Mm -hmm. left for their big rival and then he kind of came back with great fanfare. And then, I don't know. It was only like a year or two later um, <laughs> that he still had a bit of a wandering eye and yep. he, he left Marvel again to go come full circle and work in animation for Hanna-Barbera. Yep. And then and I, I thought that was hilarious because like he leaves Marvel and Stan Lee for Hanna-Barbera yep. and then he's working on the new Fantastic Four Oh, Which, don't forget Turbo Teen. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but it's like, okay, he leaves Marvel. He leaves Stan yep. Lee because he feels like Stan Lee's not treating him right. Yeah. And then he's doing the animated version of Stan Lee's franchise, yep. the Fantastic he, Four. With with Fantastic Four, he worked with Stan Lee directly on that. And it was definitely not the relationship they had in the 60s when they were creating all the greats. It was, I cannot it, imagine how tense that must have been. Oh, it must have been so tense. And from what I, from my research, they kept it cordial. They they had a very very professional relationship while working on the series. But it was basically, we're in the office, we're getting this done. Once we're done, I don't want to talk to you to eight a.m. the next day. Like there was no camaraderie. It was just let's sit down, get it done, move on. Well, it, it, it's like, you know, your entire livelihood mm-hmm. depends on this. So you have to get it done. But you're you're basically having to work w- with your ex and yeah. not just your ex, but someone you broke up with twice. Oh, yes. Yeah. And <laughs> then you got to sit down and be in the same room Ooh. and and realize that you've you've got to keep it together for the sake of of the art form. Because it it was two two men who were, uh, you know, say what you will about them, um, in a lot of respects, they were very talented men. They yes. were very good at yes. what they did. That's why they churned out mm-hmm. so many brilliant, iconic characters. Oh yeah, and and to think like Kirby at that point when he was working on the Fantastic Four cartoon, he believed Stanley owed him money. So add that into the mix, too, because prior to that, his last falling out with Marvel, they had used his name and some unused storyboards for promotion, and he was not paid a cent for that. So, you know, I mean, you're working with your ex, and they still owe you five bucks or whatever, <laughs> you know, and, and you're, you're trying to make this cartoon that I think many have forgotten actually existed, unfortunately, but, you know, it's just amazing that he was able to do that because he had a great work ethic. I mean, he worked, he was notorious for working 15-hour days. And as I'm sure you saw, too, he turned out like five pages a day, which for an artist is a lot. Yeah, I think for, for context, my understanding, and again, this is not my area of expertise, but my understanding is the average comic book artist is churning out maybe one to three pages mm-hmm, in a yep. day. Yeah. Um, you know, five pages of uh, five pages a day is kind of a ridiculous output. It is. Yeah. 
he did so much and his legacy is so large. I do want to now, though, try to narrow the scope. So I'm going to I think now seems like a good transition point for us to shift the focus and look at one of his works. Okay. The piece I've got here, I, I tried to find something that would cover a lot and the Avengers is such a a big brand and it, it covers so many things. We've got the cover here from the Avengers. This was, um, was this issue number one? Issue number one. Yep. So issue number one of the Avengers, uh, September 1st, 1963, it was only 12 cents. But here on this cover, we see, a number of characters. Um, I, I want to let you go first. What What yeah. are you seeing here? What's jumping out at you? Well, the first thing that's jumping out at me, and we touched on this earlier, are the poses of all the characters. You got Thor there with his one arm outstretched and swinging his hammer. And it's brilliant how he shows like the hammer swinging. You have the one the one solid hammer there, but then around it you just have those little little fleeting images around it, which I mean, it's a, which is a great way to show action and, and not just have a couple of whoosh lines there. And then you have, you have Iron Man standing there in his golden armor in this very awkward pose with it, with his arms just kind of a little in front of his waist there kind of hunched over. Cause he's in this giant suit of armor that is clearly heavy. And he does a great job of showing the weight of that armor in this image. That it's not easy for him to move in that, but he needs that. And he's about to, you know, go after Loki and do something very heroic, clearly. Then you have down below, I'm saving Hulk for last here. <laughs> you have down below, you have Ant-Man and Wasp. And what's interesting about them is, like Thor, they're the very svelte, heroic heroes. Because they're not damaged like Hulk and Iron Man are. They don't have this lack of peace in in themselves that they're they're fighting. Now they would later on, we won't get into later on with Hank Pym and all that, but like right now they're the straight up superheroes. So they're they're they're, they're your perfect perfect looking person with all the muscles and the curves and all that. You know, they they, they don't have all the issues. Now, when we get to Hulk though, you look at Hulk he he's hunched over he's ready for battle but he's also horribly disfigured on the outside and that's that's the key is he's disfigured on the outside the way kirby drew hulk he drew them him as this ugly horrible monster but on the inside he wasn't he was this human that was hurting and looking for that inner peace and it was a constant battle between bruce banner and the hulk that became visualized in kirby's drawing of the character and i think other artists have touched on that but i think kirby ultimately did it best showing that dichotomy of what could be good and evil hulk being evil now he's not actually evil but to bruce banner he was and he was trying to find his peace and couldn't do it when the hulk would constantly come out and bring this ugliness forward to the world yeah i think uh you know, like you say, the Hulk is a problematic character. I mean, he's destructive. He wreaks havoc on, 
he he's almost a parasite in, in Bruce yeah. Banner's body. Um, he it's a little bit uncontrolled. It is mm-hmm. that id coming out. Yeah. Um, and we see that in his lurching pose. Yes. We see that in the the expression on the face. Mm-hmm. And I love your description of Iron Man. The way that he's sort of lumbering forward, yeah. it, it is a very sort of awkward pose, and I can 100% relate to that because, like, I work in awkward the way that my classmates would work in oils, you know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I I fully see this, and, and as I look at this, you know, from that formalist lens, you know, just in terms of the composition— it's all very well balanced. Oh, very much so. Like you have Loki on the left there taking up the entire left side and coming in and filling the space on the bottom and over to the uh, the lower right below Thor, which is drawing you around the image up. So you see, first thing when I look at it, first thing I see is the is that burst. But then the burst leads me to Loki's horn, which is going just under the burst there. And from a design perspective, this is very well designed. Because you're led around the image. So you go, you have the burst, the Avengers, and then Loki's horn kind of visually brings you in like, oh, bad guy, uh uh-oh. And then you kind of go down, you get a glimpse of Iron Man there. It's like, oh, what's he doing? Like, he's ready for battle. Going around, you see Ant-Man and Wasp there, and you brought up the Thor. And then finally to the Siren, to the Hulk, and it just ties everything together so neatly. It's a very well-designed cover. Yeah, there there are very strong leading lines around mm-hmm. here um, for my eye to follow around the composition. I love the framing of it, the way that I'm basically looking over his shoulder. Yeah. I'm I'm peeking in on the action. I'm you know I'm sort of eavesdropping on on this, and like just my petty gossipy nature takes over where it's like, Ooh, I'm, this isn't laid <laughs> out for me. I I'm just peeking in on what are these people going to be doing yeah. to each other? And you know, I can, I can watch it play out over their shoulder. I'm not like in it. <laughs> I'm safely at a distance. Yes. So I can and, just watch and judge as this weird guy in a, in a golden metal suit <laughs> lumbers forward. Right. Um, and then what I think is interesting, too, is with Loki, you don't see much of Loki, but looking at him right away, you know he's a bad guy. He's got the horns and his hand is it's drawn with all the wrinkles and it's, and it's just you can't. I know, again. Uh, audio medium you can't see what i'm doing but doing like this claw look you know <laughs> like like he's ready i'm gonna get you and then it says the avengers uh bah, i will destroy you but um or i'll destroy you all but without even without that you see he's a bad guy like he is not a good guy and kirby was very good at drawing bad guys like he he he, he as i mentioned earlier you know drawing the ugliness the big hands the the big brows and that and you know i want to say lumpy but meaty characters were always the bad guys and he would use that for some of the good guys too to show that that the struggle with evil 
And now as you're as you're talking about meaty figures, I'm just looking at that speech bubble that's coming out that says the Avengers, I'll destroy you all. There's this line going down almost like the toothpick stuck oh, yeah. out of Iron Man's shoulder. Yeah, and yeah. it creates this this connection that like now I'm just looking at that almost like a little little sign <laughs> in a butcher's display <laughs> window or something like that. Um, nothing to do with anything. I just thought that was a funny connection I'm seeing here. I although I do kind of wonder the the one thing as I'm looking at this, I feel like that speech bubble, the Avengers, I'll destroy you all. I, I feel like that's a little unnecessary I because we already know the Avengers right from the title. We know it's people who are, you know, avenging some some wrong. There's some mm-hmm. sense of justice of who they are. So we, we get this sense that like this guy is getting his comeuppance and that's what they're there to do. And he must have done something horrible to make you know, Thor and Iron Man and the Hulk and um, Ant-Man, like to make them all so angry with Mm -hmm. him, you know, like we already know he must've done something really nasty. We, we've got, as you so clearly articulated the of his hand. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, but in all seriousness, there is this clenched pose there. There is this sense that like, this is, this is a confrontation happening between them. I kind of wish we didn't have that speech bubble yeah. um, just because it it's, it's, it's a little on the nose and I think we've got everything else there already illustrating it. And it creates this, it creates this minor focal point that I'm trying to imagine mm-hmm. what the negative space would look like without that white bubble. Maybe, yeah. maybe it just, you know, it's a counterbalance in some way to uh, Thor's speech bubble. Yeah. Um, I mean, design wise, they, they could have possibly moved wasp up there though. Like, or, or even Ant-Man up there. Probably I say more wasp, but like I could see why they kept Ant-Man and wasp together. My take on that bubble. I, I think it is a little extraneous, but it or superfluous. I think it would be a better word, but it, geared towards kids i mean you gotta think like this comic specifically was geared towards kids so laying it all out there and because i mean if you look down at the bottom i mean he straight up just it just straight up says superheroes supervillains super thrills you know it, it's very much this is what it is you can't mistake it for anything else it's you're not gonna see zombies you're not gonna see the crypt keeper or, or what have you it's gonna be guys in costumes fighting other guys in costumes for super thrills yeah and i you know, it, as a general rule, I am a I am a fan of making the subtext text. Mm. Um, I, I think I think it's just the um, I think it's the flow of the composition yeah. because because now I'm looking at it and it's like I start to get overwhelmed with too much text. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I mean, it, on the page. It's very I, busy. And like, there's a lot going on and, and usually I like busy. I, I generally feel like anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Um, and I just, I feel like the image is already doing so much. It, it pulls me, the, the added speech bubble almost pulls me out of it for something that I didn't really need to know. But again, I, he's achieved a little bit more success than I have. So I'm not going <laughs> to go 
too far on on that criticism. I mean, you can pick apart anything. Well, we and, probably blame Stan Lee for that one then, because he he says uh, he probably told him I want him to be saying the Avengers, Bob. Which you know, look at this is actually it's actually the third time Avengers has said in the hierarchy. You have you have the header which says the Avengers. And then below it, you have the burst, which says the Avengers. And then just below that, it says the Avengers again for the third time. So it is, it, it, it's busy, but it's driving that point home. This is an Avengers comic. It's, this is not X-Men. This is not Fantastic Four. They're getting the Avengers here. Any questions? <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I think that probably makes sense from a branding perspective. Yeah. I would I should probably be just saying who arted every five seconds, <laughs> you know, to remind people they're listening to who arted where we explore visual arts in an audio medium, because yeah, everyone should listen and subscribe, leave a, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app for who arted weekly art history for all ages. <laughs> um, but I, I think, yeah, it, it's, it's good. It mm-hmm. and oh, yes. and for issue number one, I suppose it probably that repetition is more important. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, looking at the rest of this, one of the things that I also was struck by was the difference in Iron Man's suit. Yes. Iron Man looks very different in this issue than the issue that might be published, you know, next week. Yeah. Uh, as I'm looking at this suit, I don't actually see the modeling of the body. I don't see the, the muscle, the muscle structure. It's, it's almost like a, it, it it's almost like a tube or something like yep. that. You know, like it's, it, it feels, um, clumsier. Yeah. I mean, cause you gotta think like he's, Looking at Iron Man, it's like, okay, well, he has to wear this to live. What else do people have to wear to live? And at that time, techno- the way technology was, he's thinking iron lung. So he's thinking this massive suit that's effectively a giant iron lung. And so with that, you're going to be lumbering. Now, nowadays, you know, it's you got the, the, in the movies, it's like the little nano thingies that, you know, he pulls his rip cords on his hoodie and they come out of his, of his thingy in his chest and makes his arm back then i mean he had to put this on and get into it now later they ended up giving him like a suitcase armor and stuff like that but you know at the time this was the best technology they had so he's got to be big and lumbering but i mean he's i mean creating this giant suit he's wearing war to stop war and that it's it's a very interesting concept wearing this giant suit yeah, I think it it is interesting and I I like the I like the awkwardness to it. Mm-hmm. I, I I appreciate that sense that it is something that's almost imposed upon him. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's sort of a commonality that he's got with the Hulk. I mean, when you when you think about it, you know, Thor is you know, that, that God of mythology and he's this supernatural being with supernatural powers and all of that. Yeah. Pretty hair and the perfect, perfect abs, everything, you know, he's got it all already. Iron Man had it all and effectively lost it. And the Hulk in a way had it too, and then lost it. Yeah. And, and they're, they're fighting their, they're fighting their personal demons there. Um, and, and we can visually see that mm-hmm. struggle. 
Oh, yeah. Um, which, as we've already kind of alluded to, it brings the humanity into it. It makes it relatable and it helps the audience see themselves and and connect with the characters in a different way. Very much so. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab. the lab. Is this something to learn from? Or the loop? British for the bastard. Yeah, there's a the loop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. You know, I think just the cultural impact it has had, it needs to go in the Louvre. And, I mean, you wouldn't have so much if it weren't for this. Just I mean, all the artists it influenced. And besides what he did in his later life and that, and how, how, how he influenced them, this single piece, I think, opened a lot of eyes to a lot of young kids who would go on to create something like, say, Spawn or, you know, any of the newer characters nowadays, you know, this is definitely something for the ages. Yeah, I I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I I feel like um, it is an art form that deserves its due. I mean, if if Lichtenstein's copy of his work belongs in a museum, then certainly the original should be that inspired it should be in the museum as well. I mean, and this specific piece is an important cultural artifact because as you said, it has had an influence on generations of artists and it has also brought the love of literacy to a lot of people. It's storytelling. It is the visual arts. It is all of these things coming together. And in the Avengers, we see several iconic characters brought to life. So, you know, issue number one, certainly is one for the museum in my book. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I always appreciate that you have so much more knowledge and expertise than I do on so many bits of culture. <laughs> you have introduced me to a number of artists um, that I still enjoy. And I should also point out, I want to plug your pluggables. You are a musician yourself, the yes. real Michael Lee. Yep. You want to give us the website, the Twitter, sure. the all that stuff, and I'll make sure I also link it in the show notes. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, you can find me at bit.ly slash here, T-R-M-L. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash H-E-A-R-T-R-M-L. You can find all my links there, uh, my merch store, my Spotify uh, Apple Music, Bandcamp, uh, my Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm most active on Twitter, but I'm trying to get better with Instagram. I post lots of uh, random pictures. Uh, sometimes it's music related, sometimes silly. You know, I like to have fun with it. But uh, yeah, check me out and uh, give me a holler. I most certainly will. As you know, I have been interacting with you on Twitter yes. and giving you a hard time about <laughs> All of your dadly stuff, but I I appreciate your taking the time and I will have to have you again to talk about another artist one day because I do appreciate the connections you bring to it. Thank you. I, well, thank you for having me and I would love to come back. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.